I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast supported by Pragati, a flagship media initiative of the Takshashila Institution. We're a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like to bring a fresh perspective to Indian affairs and an Indian perspective to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello and welcome back to All Things Policy. Today I'm your host Arushi and with me I have Pranay Kothasthane from the Takshashila Institution where he is a faculty member. At the Takshashila Institution, I'm a junior research scholar on the 20 million jobs project that we've been working on. And as a part of that series, today we'll be discussing the policy implementation gap. Now, there is something that has been constant since India's inception and it has been the zeal that we need to evolve and do better. And over the last 70 plus years, in the space of public policy especially, this has occurred through policy announcements where there are legislative enactments, where old policies are repealed, new ones are instated, and sometimes these create new institutions while shutting down old ones. If one would look closely at a policy, almost any policy could be thought of as whether is one trying to solve a problem or is one trying to grab a political opportunity sometimes. And that's what I would like to talk about today, that is this a binary that exists with policies that get implemented? And what really is the thought process that goes on when a new policy is being developed? What do you think, Pranay? Yeah. Hi, Arushi. Great to be here. So this is one of my favorite topics, talking about implementation deficit, public policies and frameworks in general. So I have never worked in the government, so I can't give you great insights about what happens in the government. But what I can talk about is a few models which try to tackle this question, right? Because this is not just a thing with Indian governments, right? The question about policy implementation, deficit, all that exists across the world. So, and we don't have great empirical data on this in India as well. It will always be difficult, right? To get things, see from the outside, what are the discussions and decision-making processes inside the government. So it's difficult to get empirical data for this. So I'll rather stick to models and what we know from there, right? So let me begin with the question that you said, solving problem versus grabbing an opportunity. I don't think there's a that binary exists as such, you know? So what I would like to say is, Uh, solving a problem is always at the back of the mind for any policy to come up. Uh, But whether that policy actually gets put in place, when does it get put in place, that could often be determined by an opportunity which presents itself, right? So the classic model for this is uh, Kingdon book called Agendas, Alternatives and Public Policies is a classic text in this field. And he talks about the fact that Any policy change happens when three kinds of streams meet, a problem stream, a solution stream, and uh, a political stream. So his metaphor is at that point of time, the policy window opens and when all these three streams meet, right? So problem stream essentially means the problem is well-defined, can be uh, accurately pinpointed to, and the fact that everyone agrees in the first place that it is a problem that needs to be solved. Uh, We take that for granted, right? There are many problems which uh, we can't even articulate them well, right? Just think of climate change 20 years back. That was not a problem which was uh, well-defined. Then second stream which uh, needs to be met is the solution stream. So it's not enough to know that a problem exists. You also need to have solutions 
for those problems right unless you don't have solutions yeah lots of things happen in this world but you might not exactly have a well presented solution so that's the second uh, stream right so when these two streams meet some sort of impetus comes from the government that a policy needs to be developed right there will be a policy community which will press upon the government that you know you need to do something now in contrast look at wicked problems there's a class of problems in public policy which we call wicked problems uh, by wicked problems we mean that none of these things are clear problem stream solution stream we don't even know so it might exist when uh, generally you know there are too many complexity of sub elements as again a classic paper on this uh, which talks about when the complexity of sub elements are too high or when the un- uncertainty related to the risks of uh, the solutions are too high or when there is too much divergence or fragmentation of viewpoints you don't even know which kind of solution has what kind of consequences when when there is a class of problems like that it's called a wicked problem so wicked problems are tough to solve because none of these things are clear in contrast when problem streams and solution streams have aligned you at least know that government policy can be developed now the third stream is important uh, and that's where you're grabbing your opportunity point comes in so for the policy to come into effect the political stream needs to align right especially uh, in a democracy the political stream could mean that or you know all interest groups are aligned or the people who are going to lose out because of a policy you have taken them on board you have told them that these are the costs and these this these are the ways in which we'll mitigate the costs that you will be facing so all that political work needs to happen now urgency is often one factor which can align political streams right so that's why people there's this oft quoted uh, thing that in a crisis there's an opportunity or india uh, does reforms in a crisis right so that's a caricature but uh, urgency can often be one element that aligns political streams not always there are actually many good policies which have happened in india uh, without crises as well so i would say uh, yeah this is how i would analyze this question so i think just building on that now as you mentioned kingdoms idea that if you had the policy solution and political streams meet then you would have a policy but i think something that we've also noticed with policies in india has been that you could have a very good policy in theory but it doesn't necessarily translate the way we would want it to as your newsletter calls it they have unintended consequences or maybe no consequences at all to begin with sometimes and now these consequences could be good or bad and a lot of that comes down to the implementation of the policy itself um hudson and his co-authors said that policies don't fail or succeed on their own merits it merely comes down to how well it was implemented which is to say that a good policy design isn't necessarily translating into you know good outcomes and now one could attribute this to multiple things it could be that whoever made the policy was being overly optimistic about what it could achieve um it could mean that the policy makers didn't account for the context it was going to be applied in for instance a lot of policies in india are formulated at the national level but there are extreme subnational inconsistencies that come with policies for instance um the public distribution system where you have states like tamil nadu and chatisgarh that have almost perfected the model but you have other states like up and bihar that are far behind and another thing is that they don't account for this local context and there is no collaboration that is occurring between the different bodies that need to be a part for effective implementation so um what according to you would be 
a way to implement or at least think what are the factors that come into play when implementation has to be considered once this policy has been developed to sort of bridge the gap between what theoretically the policy is supposed to do and what it actually ends up doing yeah so i mean the there are many ways to answer this question but i would start by saying actually good policy and bad implementation itself is a myth and that's what we also teach at our courses because the idea is just like you said right it's not as if you make a policy first and think of implementation later in fact an essential component of any policy design would be to think of implementation details you would think of the context you would also think of uh, what will be the un- unintended consequences how are you altering incentives etc right so if you haven't done that you can't even call a policy a good policy it might just be a good idea but to call it if these steps aren't being done it's not even a good policy so uh, I-, I would say that see the, the reason why it's important to understand this is that oftentimes this good idea bad implementation is an excuse for governments to put the blame on someone else or for people to put the blame on uh, not on a political actor and instead put it on a bureaucrat or put it on the people themselves who were supposed to be the recipients of all this right so we i have seen this play out in many cases but now look at it deeply you know of course there are implementation deficits sometimes but uh, often times when we say a policy didn't work there are no implementation failures but there are theory of change failures now what does that mean let me explain uh, any policy uh, you can think of you will have inputs outputs outcomes this is one framework that people use right inputs means how much money you put into a problem right so i say that let's take the education example where this framework became famous so in education inputs is how many schools you build how many um, how much money is allocated to it then second outputs are how many children are enrolled because of the money that you put in uh, right so what is the gross enrollment ratio and things like that and finally outcomes are what are the children finally learning out of your education system right so now people will often say that uh, you know in education india's problem is that implementation is failed that there is a good amount of money put in but you don't get the implementation results now i would contest this claim it is not an implementation failure the reason being uh, implementation failure just looks at outputs how many outputs i have gotten based on the inputs that i have given right so you may say that you know if there was corruption between the money that you put in and the output that uh, happened then it is an implementation failure right and which does happen in this case but the bigger failure is actually the failure between converting outputs to outcomes in this case right so you actually have outputs now people's gross enrollment ratio is high but you do, haven't got the outcomes that you desired and people aren't learning uh, what they should be learning and that's what year after year the assessor surveys tell us so what it says this means is that actually the problem was not implementation as much as it was a theory of change problem we thought that we could put we could make lots of government schools give lot of and uh, hire lots of teachers and that will translate these inputs will translate into great outputs and great outcomes but that theory of change itself doesn't work right I, until and unless we understand that the only solution we are going to come up with is put more money into inputs and convert those inputs into better outputs but if you want better outcomes maybe we need to reimagine that 
do you even need a government school or should government just finance people to get good quality education do we need vouchers do we need other ways do, do we need to liberalize private schools and allow them to happen do we need for profit schools these kinds of solutions only come into mind when we think of a broader category of failures which is theory of change failures and my contention is many times uh these kinds of failures masquerade as implementation failures and people will just think it is an implementation problem right so that is uh, one thing now another way right uh, this is one way i i presented the other way is what you mentioned uh, trying to anticipate the unintended consequences is often possible in public policy right you might not be able to anticipate a pandemic for example but you are able to anticipate a lot of unintended consequences generally there is again a framework by eugene barda which talks about just three things whenever you are implementing a policy think of the impact on moral hazards think if regulation is becoming uh, sort of uh, over regulation that's the second one and third what impact does it have on rent seeking you know are you increasing rent seeking in centers so these are things which people in government know very well much better than us and i'm sure these things can be put into place in the policy itself you don't need to put the policy and then think of its implementation I think what you just said very reminded me of this paper by Aditya Das Gupta and Devesh Kapoor which was about your policy implementation at the block level and they found that um the thing that was becoming a problem was that the bureaucrats in these districts were under resourced and overburdened that if you had in policy if you had districts that had the resources that they needed and they didn't have to implement 10 policies but five they were implementing them much better so maybe as you said like the input doesn't necessarily always have to be money maybe here the input just needed to be more bureaucrats or giving them the correct amount of resources and i think that's a good point to maybe also start talking about specific policies like we've been talking abstractly about theories and what people have written about in papers but india is home to multiple policies there have been multiple collections that have come out about policies that have changed india and i think i'd like to talk about at least a couple of them the first of them being the right to information act which obviously started as the freedom of information act but was then changed into the right to information act that was enacted in 2005 and um, the law is empowering indian citizens to seek information from public authority it's a method of increasing transparency improving accountability which are known to improve the outcomes of policies as well because these create these countermeasures a system of checks and balances but it's been noted that ever since its implementation there are strong loopholes with this policy itself that what was supposed to be a tool for the public to get information has not happened that you have immense amount of delays in people filing for information reports not getting them public authorities using the discretionary clause in section 28 arbitrarily to not give out certain information which was the case with a lot of details when it came to the cdsco and also that a lot of time there has been intimidation going on so um what exactly do you think maybe went wrong with the right to information act that was supposed to be a tool for people to hold the state accountable but it is supposed to have miserably failed on that account according to a lot of people yeah i don't think it does miserably fail the fact that a lot of people face threats because of this there's a pushback within the government from this indicates that it actually is going the right way right and it is increasing the demand for uh, 
ट्रांसपेरेंसी द पीपल फ्रॉम डिसएडवांटेज ग्रुप्स पीपल फ्रॉम डिसएडवांटेज बैकग्राउंड कैन ले क्लेम्स टू द स्टेट एंड वॉट दे डिजर्व बिकॉज ऑफ आर टी आई एटसेट्रा सो येस देर आर गेन्स टू दिस राइट सो या I don't think that any policy system will take something a demand for sudden transparency very lightly, right? There will be some back and forth, etc. Right? So yeah, there are lots of loopholes. But what interests me here is first of all, how did that policy come into place itself? That's the question that uh, is probably interesting. Right? Why would any state uh, authorities want to constrain themselves when they have been used to a situation where they can uh, put everything under the secrets clause or put the things that you know this is uh, data is power right so if you why would you want to give away this so that's the question why did it come into play and uh, that again there's a recent new book by himanshu jha on capturing institutional change the case of uh, the right to information act in india and it was quite an interesting book because what it talks about is that currently there are two dominant narratives about the rti acts promulgation right one it came into being because of the previous government the upa one so a lot of people say that there was a dominant role played by them the second type of narrative is that the it was a bottom up social movement led by the mazdoor kisan shakti sangathan which ultimately culminated in the rti act right now what himanshu jha uh, writes is that actually uh, both these narratives don't capture the entire reality in fact the institutional change and this is i'm quoting him institutional change in the case of rti in india is an incremental and gradual process of ideas emerging from within the state now this is a very bold claim right what he's saying is that in fact uh, indian political ecosystems uh, many of the members were on board with the idea of freedom of information many many years before the rti act came into being so you know it was like an idea whose time had come long before 2005 and the policy actually got put in place so uh, and in the book he documents how the uh, first the opposition parties and later the mainstream parties actually played a major role in uh overturning that established norm of secrecy which existed in the 60s 70s you know so the social movement did have a role to play but it also had a you know very codependent relationship with the elements in the state so mkss members new people within the government they were able to leverage those networks and those people in the government again became a norm entrepreneurs they also influenced others you know so it is not actually a narrative contest between state and versus society it was actually state and society working together at many means uh, to solve this problem you know so uh, again uh, that uh, is an interesting way to look at uh, only crises don't drive positive changes right there was no crisis at that point of time per se right there was no one instance which you can say yes because of this you need to have an rti act but still that happened and that happened because of an incremental gradual process where people within the government itself realized that uh, holding uh, secrecy is not the best way forward some people uh, bought into this idea there was a constant flow of ideas from within the government with the social movement etc and finally we did have a 
policy reform taking place that is not to say it's a, it's a perfect one none of these are races that end you know they are uh, endless like we say it's a sisyphian marathon you need to keep running so it's it, it, there are lots of things to fix but i, I would say it's a good example to understand how policy change happens in india right now you mentioned the mkss and that has reminded me of the more recent farm law protests that have been going on and them playing a role even over there so the farm laws were implemented um back in early 2020 and after a lot of deliberation and the protests that started almost immediately in the northern half of the country specifically with lot of stage and protests happening in haryana especially there were mediations with these groups unions that were representing the interests of the farmers with the government and ultimately they were repealed now one could think of this as constructive deliberation that occurred between the government and the people who were going to be directly impacted by the policy where they probably recognized that okay maybe there are unintended consequences we hadn't thought of and they've been brought to our attention and they repealed it which is often the case with policies once you recognize that they're not serving the interests they were supposed to but could it also be something else could it also be that there were other challenges with the policy could it be as you mentioned with you know the solution problem and political streams not aligning when it came to this policy what do you think was up with the farm laws in 2020 yeah i think it is definitely the political stream problem you know so i think problem with agriculture is known since at least when ambedkar wrote his paper on economics it's a earliest i know there must be may people before him also that's in 1917 i think very clearly talks about agriculture the problem of small land holdings they are unremunerative we need to ha- get people out of agriculture etc right so problems and solutions are known at least for 100 years and there are variants of solutions which have been put into place but in this particular instance where a policy was supposedly going to solve a problem uh, still couldn't get through right so i think the issue was also of the political stream where uh, one there is was a clear case of some people who were going to lose out and that happens with all policies there is no policy in which there are no losers right but the key idea of a political system is to align the cognitive maps tell people who are going to lose out how their situation can be improved have systems in place within the policy so that people who are losing out actually at least don't protest the fact that you are going to suddenly change things right there were genuine fears uh, so and the government wasn't able to think of that political stream you know so that was the challenge that's why if you see all the ideas about discussion in the parliament uh, not happening or the fact that there were clauses about the fact that if there is any grievance redressal it only ha- needs to happen at the district level and not in the courts all those things were genuine concerns and they hint to the fact that our political stream was not aligned sufficiently right so if that, those processes would have happened lot of the you know the fears could have been mitigated uh, and this definitely the government could have put place some things on due to which people would have come on board and they would have been able to see the long term benefits of it but that's an example where you know if you don't think enough of the political stream and politics doesn't end by winning the elections right there were other it, it's a constant game which is going on so that i guess didn't happen in this process and that's why you see the results that is 
So I think we, I think you answered my question that, you know, we began um, the podcast with, which is, is it always a binary between grabbing a political opportunity or solving a problem? You clearly pointed out that you would need both of these to occur at the same time for one, the policy to come about. And then if we were to think about implementation itself, it is necessary for one to think of implementation while designing the policy itself. They can't be two completely separate processes. So I think um, to end with, there's something that I read and I don't think you will necessarily agree with this idea. I don't have any thoughts on it yet either. But in a research paper, somebody ended their article by saying that could one say that policies are economic directions that are made to serve political ambitions and aspirations alone? And while the farm laws tend to point to that direction, you have multiple other policies that don't. So um, any last words on that? Okay, I have long last words on that, but uh, I, I will say this, that actually uh, policy, the word itself, right, we don't understand enough. So there's a classic paper on this also by Pritchett and Andrews called Solutions When Solution Are the Problem. And it's a 2004 paper I would recommend. It tries to answer this fundamental question, right? How is it that India is able to do certain things well, let's say midday meal scheme or vaccination, but why is it not able to do other things well? So they have a nice classification. They actually divide the things that governments do into four categories, depending on two variables, which is what is the transaction intensity and what is the discretionary intensity. Transaction intensity just means how many transactions do you have to do for a certain thing to happen, right? So if you are actually, for example, uh, in a vaccination program, they, there are many crores of transactions which happen. Right. So that is transaction heavy. And there are discretionary uh, variable just looks at uh, whether uh, the person who is actually delivering uh, can uh, uh, needs to apply their own mind. Uh, they, they have freedom to take a discretionary call or whether there are very strong conditions laid down in which they have to act. Now, if you look at this, this framework, you'll get four boxes, right, where you have one box will be where you have uh, no uh, transactions are very few and uh, the discretion involved with the person who is delivering are also very few. So these are called rules or procedures in this paper. Okay, so they are easy to do because non-transactions -tra uh, aren't very high, discretions are not very high, it's easy to do. Now look at the second category where transactions are many thousands crores, but you can easily divide the problem into non-discretionary tasks. So you can clearly lay down procedures that need to be followed for doing ABC. Now a lot of our government successes actually fall under these categories and they are called programs in this categorization. So the programs like midday meal scheme, uh, ASHA workers, vaccination, all these fall under these categories, right? You can easily say to the person, do ABC, put so many drops of polio drops and etc. Right? There are not much discretion at the part involved. So you can still manage them. Now, third category is what are called policies where you uh, have a lot of discretion, but... <coughs> But the action uh, necessary does not involve a lot of transactions. So look at education. Uh, curriculum design is a classic example, right? So curriculum design is where you just need to get 30, 40 people, intelligent people who can do this. It's not a heavy transaction thing, uh, but it is, of course, discretion. You need really smart people to be there. Otherwise, you will get bad policies, right? And similarly, a lot of government interest rate, macroeconomic policies fall under this category. 
so this is policies now the fourth category is where both they are transaction heavy and they are discretionary heavy these are called practices uh, an example for this would be classroom teaching right it is discretionary it is transaction heavy similarly approving loans for low income farmers is this discretionary it can't be a formula that you deliver and it is also transaction heavy so these are things which are really really difficult to do and they are difficult to do uh, not just in india in many places where there are low state capacity right so these are uh, these are in their categorization they are called practices so now if you look at it uh, you know programs are easy to do and governments not easy but relatively easy to do and indian governments have shown that they can do it policies are also sometimes easy to do if you have good people in place if you can identify a policy community which has 40 50 smart people you can do a non transaction heavy and yet discretionary task but practices are really tough and that requires building capacity of the kind that you were talking about right at the local level do you have enough people do you have checks and balances in place that takes time I think that was a really interesting way to end it thinking about that a lot of our policies could do better if we were to build capacities both at the local level in multiple ways that have been or as you said like while solutions to farmers uh, grievances have also been written about for 100 years so have you know ways to build local capacities and I think the only way that we could effectively reduce the gap is to start acting on them so thank you so much for coming today it was a really insightful conversation Thanks thanks so much bye If you liked our show don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network you can tune into them on the IVM podcast app ivmpodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts you can also follow IVM on social media the handle is at @ivmpodcasts on twitter facebook and instagram and hey If you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at @takshashila_inst or our website takshashila.org.in.